Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're going to be talking about rich people and how they've rigged the system. My guest today is one of my favorite journalists, longtime Mother Jones writer and editor Michael Mechanic, and he's got a new book out called Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. It's a really smart, nuanced, deeply reported and often maddening look at how the wealthiest Americans have rigged the system to the point where, as Mechanic writes, half the population of the world's wealthiest country on the planet are struggling to get by while the rich get richer. And now, here's my conversation with Michael Mechanic. Michael Mechanic, from your home in Oakland to my home in Oakland, let's uh, welcome you to uh, It's All Political. This is the all-town version. It's doing? too bad we can't sit on the front porch and do it. I would love that, or or as, uh, perhaps at George and Walt's, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, that, that would perhaps be the first uh, podcast done from uh, our local tavern. I would do it. I have to say, first off, uh, I loved your book. It's smart. It's richly reported. It's provocative, and it's maddening in how you meticulously <laughs> outline how many ways super rich people have the system rigged. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, riff for for a minute here. Uh, and you, you, because you write that, that the aristocracy that uh, America's founders were fleeing in England, it's, it's actually worse than that now. And, and one quote, yeah, was from uh, Gabriel Zuckman, the UC Berkeley economist and former guest in this podcast, who said that America today is arguably worse than what John Adams feared. Not a hereditary aristocracy, but an economic one that, quote, can present itself as more legitimate than the old world aristocracy where you were rich and powerful for arbitrary reasons. And there's enough cases of success in America, as Zuckman said, he tells you, that that look like meritocracy to give an impression of legitimacy to those who are on top of the economic and wealth pyramid. That's the core theme of the book. America's economic ladder, where people have the hope of climbing from one economic strata to another, is essentially gone. Why is this? It's policy. A lot of it is policy. It's, it's both policy and rules that allow people to sort of get around the rules um, if you have the means. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, we saw that we saw, obviously, you've probably seen some of those charts of, of wealth and income over time and taxation over time. And mm-hmm. you see this, you know, around the first Gilded Age is very much like it was now. You have this incredible gap in wealth and there really was no no tax then the the income tax came the inheritance taxes came in very early in the century uh, last century and um income tax same because at, at the time like everybody was a farmer in america before the industrial revolution and la- land was what got taxed land was your wealth right and then these guys come in and they've changed the game and they're big industrialists so they're building railroads and such and they're able to amass just extraordinarily wealth, and there's no taxes on it. Um, and they're also kind of stiff in their workers at the same time. And so finally, so people step up and they get mad and they say, we got to reform this. So they put these taxes in place and they start charging very high marginal income taxes, meaning on the top proportion of your wealth. If you make more than a certain amount, that amount gets taxed, you know, very highly. And it, it kind of through the 40s and 50s, the post-war era, things were more equal in America. I mean, think you know the there was the, the middle class thrived. Um, there was a lot 
available. Well, if you were white anyway, um, right. there, were, there were also a lot of policies that were blacks were excluded from and women were excluded from. Um, but then we get to the 80s and the Reagan revolution and the Reagan under Reagan and Jack Kemp, you know, the supply side quarterback. They, yes. Yeah. They uh, it always it was do the fake quarterback throws when he was on the campaign trail. Yeah. Right. Um, so they put in a couple of like two, two big tax bills went through 81 and 86. And that started this division again. They, they cut ta very high taxes. It was a trickle down theory. You give more money to the very wealthy. And eventually it'll come down to benefit the poor. I mean, and that was also, you know, Andrew Carnegie's argument too. You know, we have to we have right. to pay people poorly because competition is tight in our industry, and you know, and then his whole thing was, oh, you make a ton of money, you give it back, right? But uh, so let's let's talk about some of the, these political reasons that you, you're sort of alluding to now. And and uh, wealthy Americans, as you say, uh, corporations have been able to master the tax laws in this country, and in, even in the CARES Act. Now this is the this is the 2.2 trillion COVID relief bill passed last year when Donald Trump was president. There are 161 billion dollars in tax breaks uh, for uh, corporations that and um, that. And you write, Congress gave more money in 161 billion in tax breaks to the wealthy uh, individuals and corporations than it did to help the social safety net, 42 billion, or to help state and local governments. Uh, how is that able to be done? This is a, a, you know, this is supposed to be a bill that was to help us all. Walk us through, you know, the, the, a little bit about how uh, the, the, the amount of, um, it, another one, you talk about the, the tax bill in 2017 for, uh, that uh, helped the wealthy Americans. There was 11 lobbyists for every legislator. <laughs> there was like 6,000 lobbyists descend on the hill. It was crazy. I mean, just. And there were so many, I don't even think they could get to the lawmakers, but, you know, it's really the leaders who crafted that bill. And they said, you got to vote on this because, you know, fall into line. Um, and that sort of happened with the CARES Act, too. I mean, in fact, when the CARES Act was passed, the Congress was social distancing. You could, they weren't meeting and they weren't debating. And it was all the leadership was putting together this package. Uh and there was there was a, a still a million lobbyists behind the scenes. And actually, I talked to Tom Malinowski, the New Jersey congressman, about this, and <clears throat> he said that, um, you know, he's, he he wasn't blaming. He's like, that's what lobbyists do for a living. They find a fast-moving bill and they try to attach their stuff to it. Most of it gets caught, cut out, and this one didn't. And th this this was a Republican provision. And well, there was you know there was a Republican provision and. It was sort of, there were actually two different provisions. And one was a huge, huge benefit to what's called pass-through pass business owners, which would include things like Donald Trump's company, real estate, you know, hedge funds, private equity. Um, there's a lot, a lot of pass-through businesses, but the bulk of them are very, very wealthy owners. And this was actually a benefit for the owners themselves because pass-through companies don't pay taxes, the owners do, the partners do. And so this thing allowed them to deduct like past losses of non-business income yeah, from, for, for previous from, years. From their from their yeah, from previous previous years. And that that income they could be deducting. I mean, I'm just talking about current sorry, current losses from past profits. So they could get retroactive tax cuts and they could deduct 
thing like profits from you know selling their mansion or um you know renting their yacht or, or whatever it was like these personal it wasn't business income it was non-business income this is crazy it was just a big giveaway yeah and this is uh, and again because they can pay for the 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 lobbyists the the accountants the uh, all the all the people who are representing their business interests in Washington. That's how this is happening, right? And uh, you, you talk to a number of wealth advisors in this book, people mm-hmm. who who help uh, the super wealthy uh, deal with their money in a variety of ways. And you write the word that the word legacy comes up a lot. And uh, we're about to see a huge. Uh, we are seeing a huge wealth transfer in this country over the next twenty five years. Forty five million Americans will pass along sixty eight trillion dollars in wealth. When, when they're using the word legacy, what does that mean? And what are some of the things that wealthy people are doing to protect their legacy? Well, legacy means like three different things. One is the college thing. It's you know you you went to, your dad went to Harvard, so you get a boost. Mm-hmm. Um, legacy literally means the money and assets you accumulate in life so there's a financial legacy and then yours there's your legacy like your story kind of how you're going to be remembered your friends and enemies you know we are that sort of you know everyone's familiar with that right but i I find that you know most of us don't walk around thinking oh how am i going to be remembered there's a certain grandiosity that comes with great wealth where everybody is everyone's sort of thinking about well, you know, I'm important and $50 million and, and what am I going to be, how are people going to think of me? And uh, so they, you know, think about how the charitable giving is all like, oh, how, how can I, well, some of it's how can I make myself look good and some of it's truly, you know, I I care about this. Um, But uh, yeah, so, but the, the financial legacy you know, it's funny that I, I talked to a bunch of people that that said, I think people should pay more. I think we should pay more taxes. I think our system is unfair, but the rules are the rules. And these are the rules. And I'm going to go by the rules and use them. There's nothing wrong with that. And the thing is, when you're that rich, you have these advisors all around you and their job is to find all the little loopholes and present mm-hmm. you with all the opportunities. And some of these loopholes, the legal loopholes are insane. Like this is a really, this is something that really surprised me, you know, having not really understood the estate planning world. When you dig in, you find all these weird trusts that people can set up that will shield your money from creditors and also shield it from taxation. And, and, and in fact, the most popular one is called a grantor retained annuity trust, and I won't go into how it works. Oh yeah, that's I gotta say that that, that chapter was that chapter is. I was like, wow, Mike Mike's done some. Uh, he's gone to financial planning school here. This is oh good god, I had to like, I you know I had to really try to. It took a while to wrap my head around all this. Yeah, but but uh, it's called a grat, and it actually came about by accident because. There was there was something called a grit, a grantor retained income trust, and back in the like '90s, wealthy families when when interest rates were high, you could kind of game this to as sort of an estate tax dodge, and the government figured this out, and so Congress, like in 1988 and 1990, they they changed the rules, and they they but they changed them, you know, when they changed them, they opened up this other loophole, and there was this guy named Richard Covey who sort of a, well-known uh, estate 
lawyer. Um, he, he, he writes a newsletter for us trust. Um, and he's in his eighties now. And I called him up. He was, he's credited with being kind of the inventor of the grat. And he said, yeah, but they just totally screwed up, right? The government screwed up. They didn't know what they were doing. And now it just opened the doors to being able to shield just billions and billions of dollars, like no risk in these tactics. I mean, Sheldon Adelson used grats to shield, to pass like $8 billion to his offspring without paying any taxes. I mean, he saved like, he saved like $3 billion in taxes. Um, it, it's it's and you can do this, and it's it's literally you you don't risk anything when you when you do it. You have to have a lot of money to um, put these plans in. You know, you wouldn't even know about this unless you were rich. I mean, the, what the money does is you start meeting with these people and it opens doors to all these things you never knew about. In a way, that's sort of weird, right? I had one guy say, you know, the main thing that changed when I hit the jackpot is I've got all these people around and I've got a, that I got to consult with that I never wanted to before, you know, I, they're just every three months, I got to go meet with these advisors. And, and, and that's actually interesting about, you know, one thing about having money, you know, we fantasize about how it's going to liberate us, but actually you end up thinking about it all the time. There's so many, it can be all, can be all consuming. You worry about, you think about, it, you think about, oh, am I doing this right? And who do I give it to? And what, what do I support and what do I buy and how do I manage it? I mean, it's like a full-time job, really. One, one, yeah, and that's one thing I think you did a, a really nice job with in the story. It's, it would be easy to be uh, just, you know, rich bashing here. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's something that, you know, it, it makes us feel good when we do this. But you, you humanized a lot of the folks who are very wealthy and, and all these, you know, when they do suddenly come into wealth, uh, not necessarily old money people, but they, um, they, they're overwhelmed by it in many ways. And they're also, uh, many of the parents you said are, are concerned about, you know, what the money will do to their children. The, um, that's one side that tell us a little bit about, did that surprise you at all? Well, which part of it? The, the, <laughs> the, the, the hum, the, I mean, the, 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 like the, 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 the issues that they had that, you know, sometimes we think with people, with a lot of money don't have any issues. And, you you outlined some issues that they had that you know might not have known about. I mean, we, we've all kind of heard the lottery stories, right? Yes. The, you know, the, uh, the unsophisticated person, all of a sudden they have you know twenty million dollars and they just don't know what to do with it and they freak out and and yet you know everybody's buying you know half the nation buys lottery tickets. We 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 think we want this. Um. It's funny, you know, do you remember the there was the $1.5 billion lottery um, Powerball, you know, mm -hmm. jackpot? It had gotten up to $1.5 billion. It was like historical. And I actually bought, you know, I'm writing a book about this stuff. i got to buy some tickets, right? <laughs> and and so I, I woke up in the middle of that night, the night of the drawing, and I'm like, what if I win? Like, I'm screwed. Like, I can't stay in this house. I, I, I wouldn't be able to stay in this neighborhood and hang out with my friends. I would be, you know, everybody would be coming around here and knocking on my door and trying to get at me. And actually, any, anybody who sort of, especially people who are unsophisticated, but even sophisticated people, you, people come at you. They want to help you manage your money. They want you to invest in their thing. Um, a lot of them, some of them are crooked. They want loan people, family members come to you for loans. And that's really uncomfortable. Um, 
I mean, a, a several uh, more than one source said to me that a fam family member wanted money to do this or that, or um, asked them, or, or they offered to loan the money because they were in bad shape, and and they did, and then it, it really hurt the relationship. Uh, things got really awkward, screwed up yeah. in some cases. They don't don't even talk to each other now. Um, it's that's it's sad that we have we are so neurotic about money that we we can't have these kinds of exchanges without it screwing up relationships. Right. And in fact, money could screw up relationships a lot of ways. Oh, I, I yeah, and and you and you detail them in in um, in, in very uh, human terms, uh, but inter inter family uh, conflicts and 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 friends. You can't, as you said, you can't hang out with the same people. You you can, but it's just weird because you're doing different things if you're when you're super right. Healthy. And there becomes it becomes sort of this weird set of expectations. From you know, it's like there's a there's this pecking order because we because we think about we kind of rate people based on their wealth and success. So if you know, if you've got the rich friend and the poor friend, poor friend's always going to feel like a bit of a schlump. Mm. And, you know, it, they'll feel like, am, am I freeloading by hanging out on my friend's yacht, you know? And right, the rich right. friend might feel, you know, even though he doesn't want to, he might feel like he's being charitable. I don't know. <laughs> it's a weird psychology. We'll have more of my conversation with Michael Mechanic, author of Jackpot, after this short break. And now, back to my conversation with Michael Mechanic, author of Jackpot, How the Super-Rich Really Live, and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. Another thing you write about is that a lot of these people, even, even the more woke ones that you write about, is sort of the myth of the self-made man, and it usually is men. Uh, a lot of these rich folks uh, believe that they made this through their own hard work and don't really acknowledge the structural advantages that, that all of them had. Uh, what are some of those that that may that that they're not acknowledging? Well, well, first of all, most of them are white. Most of them are men. <laughs> yes, and those are two things right there because both officially and unofficially, I mean, the government has had policies in place up through the '60s that officially block black people from making money. When you think about it, um, and, and accumulating wealth, I mean, housing. Everything from this Homestead Acts to redlining much later. The Homestead Acts were started like at the end of the Civil War and went beyond that. But they it was the biggest public to private wealth transfer in American history. And they gave 160 acre parcels of land to anyone who would go out and kind of improve on the land and stay there. And something like, I think it was like 1.2, 1.4 million white families got land in that deal. And remember, at that time, land was intergenerational wealth. That was what you passed along to your, your children. Um, and only 5,000 black families. Hmm. Which, and if you look forward, up like a, uh, this researcher calculated this for me, roughly a quarter of all white American adults are descended from the people who got that land from the government. So, it's, and also, so the GI Bill is another thing uh, the GI Bill was a huge mobility engine, mostly for white people, because of the lending rules and so forth that are in place and the barriers for for people of color to get into colleges. It was it was black people couldn't take advantage of the GI Bill in the same way that whites could, and that was you know a lot of people went to college on that, and college is a big mobility engine too. 
So, I mean, even if even if you personally didn't get the advantage, your family probably did, and that put you in a place to. I mean, even if you weren't given distinct advantages, the roadblocks weren't there for you. Right, right, and 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 you explore this in depth. And, and one of my favorite chapters is about race, which is, uh, of course, very powerful and timely as we, as we talk about uh, reparations in this country. Uh, mm-hmm. Quick, quick stat: median wealth of white families in this country is 171 million, which is about ten times you, you as mean, much. You mean thousand? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry, hundreds. <laughs> Maybe it's pretty, pretty super rich. <laughs> Right. <laughs> 171,000, which is about 10 times as much as black families, eight times as much as Latino families. Uh, and some estimates have that as 50, perhaps 50 times as, as great. It's extraordinarily hard, as you alluded to, uh, for black Americans to move up the economic ladder. And part of which you start talking about is sort of the black tax. What, what right. is that and how does that make things harder? Well, the black tax is, it's, um, I, I can't remember the name off my hand of the author who sort of popularized that expression. But he wrote a book about it. Um, the black tax is just essentially all the policies that have been in place over time. So the, some of the ones I was just talking about that create obstacles to black wealth. So slavery, slavery was the hundred percent black tax. It took all your labor, all your freedom. Um, you had no opportunities to to gain economically. Um, and then after that, you know, there were the Jim Crow laws, the black codes, the the um, you know, redlining, the Homestead Acts, all these things were parts of the black tax. And the black tax continues, even though it's unacknowledged, you know, post-racial America. No, it's not. There's still bad housing discrimination. If you look at, you know, realtors will still, if you're black and you walk into a realty, they'll still point you towards the minority neighborhood. And they could, you know, um, and in fact, (laughs) there's a, there's a new book called uh, The Whiteness of Wealth by a woman named uh, Dorothy Brown, and she's a tax she's a tax attorney. She actually she went into tax law because she wanted something. She had seen a lot of racism in her youth, and she didn't want to deal with it as a professional. And when she started digging into it, she realized the tax code is heavily weighed in favor of the of, of white people. And it's not because the law says white, black, of course. It's just because of the circumstances people are in at the outset. Another thing, so another thing is this is just sort of, this is not a racial thing, but it's sort of workers versus capital, right? You know, we we reward capital and we tax work in a big way. I mean, it's very, there's very low capital gains taxes. So if I'm if I'm a billionaire and I have a hundred million in cash sitting around and I throw it into the stock market and it doubles, the amount of tax I pay on that profit is considerably lower than what you get paid the, the money that you get paid at the Chronicle. I mean they take well, they take whatever out, but they take maybe 20%, 20-21% out of these massive profits. And you know. People justify this and say, well, these are the job creators these are the people who create businesses. It's like, if you charge people more on capital gains, do you really think they're going to create less businesses? I don't think so. I mean, because these guys, they, they, that's what they do. They're, they're entrepreneurs. They enjoy doing that. It's their identity. Um, so what? They make a little less money. They have so, the, the, the way the system is set up, 
money makes more money. It's called passive profits, right? If you have cash, it's going to bring you a lot of money the way the stock market has been going. And we are about to see, because of the stimulus, this next couple of years could be really booming. You know, during the pandemic, billionaires cashed in. They absolutely cashed in. Um, the billionaire wealth in the first year of the pandemic increased 1.3 trillion, like 44%. Um, and even though it's definitely true that the stimulus is going to be good for everyone, and a lot of it, there's some provisions that are really aimed towards lifting people out of poverty. I think that's great. Um, but in all of these bills, they help, you know, they help the poor middle class, but they help the rich more. That's the way it always seems to turn out. It's always embedded in these things. You, it, you, there's, you talk about uh, philanthropy and, and often, even during the stimulus, you know, we saw the major corporations, oh, we're going to give $100 million here and, uh, and uh, you know, $100 million there, what, what have you. But uh, but a lot of philanthropy is, uh, you say roughly a third of charitable giving actually helps needy people. A lot of this stuff, a lot of this money is locked up in things like donor-advised funds, which I've written about. That you, you don't even have to, they don't, they're not even required to be paid out. Yeah. Um, you, you write about uh, Rob Reich, uh, the uh, Stanford professor who's written about this a lot. He said the federal charitable deduction costs uh, American taxpayers more than fifty billion a year. He says, "Kill it and replace it with a tax credit." How how would that work? Just that. I mean, you because it's a deduction. First of all, it means that if you itemize, there's only only something like ten to twelve percent of people now itemize because they increase the standard deduction. Mm-hmm. So if you itemize in your taxes, you get to take a full charitable deduction, hundred percent, and so that saves you. Like, okay, so I think like the example I use in the book is if if um, I gave, if if I do the standard deduction and I give $1,000 to some, you know, Feeding America, right. um, then I don't get to take a deduction at all because I, because I, because it's just part of my standard deduction. Right. So I don't gain anything from that. I'm just giving, which is fine. But the rich guy, um, he does it. Let's say he has. Let's say his tax effective tax rate, which is this is pretty high for a billionaire, but let's say he's thirty percent. Just to be, that means he's paid seven hundred dollars for that donation, his thousand dollar donation. So he's getting a break on his charitable giving. And why would you do that? Like, why would you reward giving by the wealthy and not by the less wealthy? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So Reich was saying, if you make it a tax credit then anyone can use it. Anyone can give and get something out of it. Um, from I mean, and there's a whole, there's all arguments like, well, why should we subsidize this at all, right? Right, because the middle class is subsidizing this, essentially. Well, the middle class is subsidizing the giving by the rich. Actually, yeah. taxpayers are, um, I mean, every time a billionaire gives, you know, $50 million to Harvard, 20% of that is we're paying it. So, so we're all giving money to Harvard, right? But we don't get our name on the building. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we don't. Um, you talk about the, uh, you know, it, there's an allusion to, okay, why isn't the, the, the 99% uh, revolting against the 1%? And, and uh, you, you quote uh, Nick Hanauer, he's in Seattle, a very wealthy man there. And he said that, you know, the revolution's here. He said Trumpism is the pitchforks. 
the, 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 it's brought along the dissolution of democratic norms and increase in uh, racism and xenophobia, destabilization of society. What form would the, if there were to be a revolution, would it take? And, and, and are we seeing it right now? We're seeing what, you know, we're seeing the seeds of it. Um, we're seeing some attempt at it, I think. I mean, sort of what I, I don't want to give away the ending, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, it was it was really interesting writing the ending of this book at a time when things were going haywire, right? Um, because you know, for, well, first of all, I reported three quarters of it before the pandemic, and then the pandemic came, and I was like, "What's going to happen to my book?" Right? What what is how is this going to change the landscape? And uh, is it going to be like the Great Recession, where the wealthy people during the Great Recession lost a lot of wealth, but then they then it came back, of course, strongly much more strongly that, I mean, they had an amazing recovery, right, as they did in the pandemic, but I didn't know what was going to happen. So um, I was worried about that a little bit, but then it turned out I didn't have to worry because the rich were just fine. <laughs> they they did, they bounced back very quickly um, and in fact ended up doing incredibly well. Uh, and no, I'm not, I'm only saying that for the benefit of you know, the timeliness of the book, not for the Oh, this society. this book is very um, timely. But I, you know, it, uh, that's 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 I think. Well, I, I, that's uh, my final question. I want to ask you: Is it you know we talk about how the system is rigged and, and so intrinsically and so deeply? Is it too late to change? And and what would it take to change the way things are going? Well, my argument to talking about the revolution. My argument was it can't be you know it's not it can't be a bloody revolution like the French Revolution. It has to be a revolution of thought where we're not just the masses get angry, but the rich wake up. The, the, the people who are good people, and there are a lot of good rich people, and a lot of them are sort of shocked by how they've become as rich as they have. You know, some of the people attack, they're, they're just like, oh my God, I'm worth $50 million. How did this happen, right? I had some idea, and all of a sudden, I'm swimming in cash. And then they see, you know, people look, people who have the capacity to look around them and see others are suffering and, and to be able to say this isn't fair. And the, what has, you know, there, I, as I said in the book, there's like a small minority of very wealthy people who are gaming the system purposely and trying to make it even more to their advantage. Some of these dynastic families, the ones who have senators on their, well, not I won't say on their payroll, but almost on, <laughs> almost on their payroll. Virtually. Uh, virtually. <laughs> And then you have, on the other hand, groups like the patriotic millionaires, who are a, a group of very wealthy citizens who is actually lobbying the government to make things fairer. Um, and like one, you know, one of my sources is from there. Um, and in between, you have this massive group of wealthy people who are just like the rest of us. They're going about their lives. They're putting out fires. They're taking care of their kids and and doing their thing and working hard and whatever, but they're not really thinking about their privilege and their position and how good they have it and how bad other people have it. And so I think the key to this revolution is for some of those people to kind of become more alert and actually say, okay, this isn't right and we're gonna change this, we're gonna help change this. And I think we're seeing some of that. Um, you know, Mackenzie Scott, uh, Jeff, formerly Jeff Bezos's wife, yeah. uh, she so she gave away something like you know eight billion dollars last year without even forming a foundation. She just started doing. She got a bunch of smart people around her to help vet organizations, and she started 
just giving out large unrestricted gifts to all these social justice groups groups to like help people in the crisis but also groups that sort of work to level society's playing field make make it economically fairer and um I, I, she's setting a great example now i don't know how many people are going to follow that example uh but the funny thing about that is she's much richer now than she was before she gave that money away because the pandemic has made her wealth. I mean, she plans, says she plans to give everything away, but it's hard to give away that much money when you have that much, much money. It grows so fast. You can barely get it out the door. Well, and giving I, away I, money is not easy. Like giving away money responsibly is not easy. And, and tellingly you, you say, and I think this is still the case that her, her ex-husband Bezos, uh, has not signed on to that uh, giving pledge that uh, a few dozen billionaires have made to give away at least half their wealth in their lifetime. Mm, that's right. Correct? He's not. He's still not on there. No, he's he? not. Um, okay. And I don't know. He, he probably thinks, like, he doesn't need to be because he's, he's Jeff. He's special. Uh, <laughs> but even, it's funny because Rob Reich from Stanford, uh, he, he said to me, I think there's only about two people on that entire list that aren't richer now than when they signed the pledge. So it's like just what I said. It's like, you know, and anyway, half of your wealth, if you got $50 billion, you give away half your wealth, so what? <laughs> you know, you don't even notice the difference. Yeah, it's, it's the least you could do. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. The book is Jackpot, How the Super Rich Really Live and How Their Wealth Harms Us All. You can uh, uh, check it out at rejackpot.com, correct? Right. And uh, good luck with it. Uh, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Michael for being on the podcast today. His book is on sale now. And for more about Jackpot, go to rejackpot.com. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for editing today's episode. And of course, a shout out for our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Song. And remember... No matter how rich you are or how poor you are, it's all political. <laughs>